Hey there, Compile Podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's episode. This Compile Podcast episode is part one of a discussion between Rhonda McGill, Perform Line Senior Director of Client Success, and Kimberly Monte Holzell and Courtney Hayden from Goodwin. As they take a deep dive into recent marketing compliance enforcement actions and share their advice for getting ahead of regulatory scrutiny. Listen as they discuss several enforcement actions and trends, including fair lending and redlining in mortgage and beyond, and FDIC misrepresentations by fintechs. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Rhonda McGill, and I'm the Senior Director of Client Success here at PerformLine. On behalf of the PerformLine team, I want to welcome each of you, along with our wonderful guests, who will be introducing themselves here in a moment. In the first half of 2023, there were over 100 enforcement actions taken against financial services organizations from federal, state, and local regulators. As we prepare to wrap up the second half of the year, we wanted to pause and take a look at a few notable violations that touched on compliance with marketing to customers. Today, we will take a look at a few notable enforcement actions and discuss some trends. We will touch on some of the expectations from regulators that you may want to be prepared for. And we will also share some best practices that you can do to be proactive with your marketing compliance, keeping your business out of regulatory trouble. Joining us today are Kimberly Holzell and Courtney Hayden of Goodwin Proctor. Kimberly and Courtney, please tell our guests a little bit about yourselves and your area of practice at your firm. Courtney, would you like to go first? Happy to. Thanks for having us. My name is Courtney Hayden. I'm counsel in Goodwin's Boston office in our consumer financial services litigation practice area. I primarily represent financial institutions and fintech companies in government investigations, enforcement matters, and complex litigation, including class actions. Thank you. And Kim. Hi, everyone. My name is Kim Holzell. I'm a partner at Goodwin Proctor in our Boston office. Um, where Courtney focuses on enforcement litigation, I'm on our business law and compliance side. I represent fintech companies, banks, and their investors um, in building financial services and making sure that the programs run in compliance with the law um, so that hopefully there never is an enforcement action. And Kimberly and I had an opportunity to work together about a year and a half ago, um, hosting a roundtable um, to discuss buy now and pay later. So it's so good to have you back with us here at PerformLine. So let's jump into some of the notable enforcement actions around marketing and advertising. Um, I think maybe first, let's talk a little bit about um, the mortgage space and redlining. So maybe it's just me, but it seems like the DOJ has been very focused on redlining. Courtney, would you mind providing a bit of background and overview on some recent redlining cases for our show? Sure. Happy to do so. Um, I thought it would also be helpful to give a little bit of context um, in terms of where these cases are actually coming from and why. So as you mentioned, um, mortgage fair lending cases in particular has been a large focus and continues to be a large focus of both state and federal regulators. Um, we have a firm blog that tracks enforcement data. And through that, we've seen that there's a there's a 
you know, decrease, generally speaking, in overall mortgage origination and servicing related enforcement actions in the past couple of years in 2021 and 2022. But we're actually starting to see an uptick and a rise in that area in 2023. Um, it's our view that this is not surprising because the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or CFPB had issued a fall 2022 supervisory highlights that suggested that more enforcement actions in the mortgage space were going to be forthcoming. Um, and in the mortgage fair lending space in particular, the Bureau fairly recently had issued summer 2023 supervisory highlights. And these indicated that recent examination examiners had found um, alleged violations of the ACOA, its implementing regulation, Reg B, um, and that it's also going to be focusing on potential violations of HMDA and Reg C um, for the remainder of the year and presumably years to come. So with that kind of context in mind, um, I'll mention a couple of um, recent uh, mortgage redlining enforcement matters. So. In February of this year, the DOJ had announced a $9 million agreement to resolve allegations in the Southern District of Ohio that a lender had engaged in, quote, a pattern or practice um, of lending discrimination by redlining in the Columbus, Ohio metropolitan area. Um, this was part of the DOJ's, quote, combating redlining initiative, which was started and announced um, by the DOJ back in October of 2021, so almost two years ago at this point. Um, the DOJ alleged that this particular lender had failed to provide mortgage lending services to majority Black and majority Hispanic communities. Um, this lender um, had concentrated all of its branches and lenders in majority white neighborhoods. Um, the DOJ found that it's the, the peer lenders had generated mortgage applications uh, at rates five to 10 times higher than this particular lender in majority Black and Hispanic communities. And then peer lenders had separately offered um, mortgage loans at rates four and a half to 12 and a half times larger um, or higher rather than this particular lender. lender. Um, and so some of the specifics of the consent agreement is fairly similar to what you'll hear um, from me with respect to the next redlining action that I'll mention too, but it required an investment in a loan subsidy fund, um, money to outreach, advertising, financial education in minority neighborhoods and communities, and development of community partnerships. It also required uh, the company to open new branch and loan production offices in majority minority um, neighborhoods too. Hmm. Um, kind of, if I can just jump to the next tag along. Matter. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll do some takeaways at the end here. Okay. Um, so a couple of months later in May of 2023, also as a part of the DOJ's combating redlining initiative, um, they had brought a separate enforcement action that resulted in a settlement um, that had kind of an added marketing heavy focus to mm -hmm. it. So a community bank was sued by the DOJ over claims that it had also engaged in a pattern or practice of uh, lending discrimination by redlining in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods around the Philadelphia area. Um, it alleged that the bank had excluded a specific Pennsylvania county from its community re um, community um, 
I'm completely blanking. Community reinvestment. Thank you. <laughs> Community reinvest, uh, reinvestment assessment area, um, which you know is commonly referred to as the CRA. Um, the uh, claims that it asserted pretty similar Fair Housing Act claims, a co-op claims, which is pretty repetitive in this area, um, and it can it. Um, Actually, I'll, I'll mention like an interesting like procedural nugget of how the DOJ got this case, which mm-hmm. is how the DOJ sometimes does get get matters. So this was initiated by an FDIC um, examination, and the FDIC had referred this case to the DOJ, um, and that's fairly uh, not necessarily common, but it does happen. Technically, there's um, a requirement that certain agencies, when they've identified a potential pattern or practice discrimination claim, they must refer such cases to the DOJ for the DOJ to potentially do its own investigation and decide whether it wants to pursue an enforcement matter. So that's how this case got got to the DOJ. Um, so th- kind of the marketing focus here was that DOJ alleged targeted marketing efforts had occurred in majority white areas, but not uh, minority areas. Um, and then one additional interesting fact here that the DOJ focused on was that the um, company had ascertained fair lending reports from third party vendors. And those vendors that the that the community bank had engaged actually identified these as potential issues, and then the DOJ found that the bank didn't actually um, address them in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the consent order ended up being a uh, three point two million dollar consent order here with the same types of financial requirements, um, providing money to a loan subsidy fund, investing in community partnerships, um, and then hiring. Um, designated loan officers to serve minority communities. Um, so happy to talk about some takeaways on the um, kind of more, I, I guess, like low level front. And then Kim, maybe you can provide some higher level risk management ones. Yes. I would just say that, um, you know, from these two enforcement actions, it's important to make sure you're reviewing your own data, reviewing peer, peer lender data, if possible, um, especially to understand mortgage application and origination volume separately um, between minority and non-minorities. Monitor locations of loan officers and brokers and branch locations and, you know, pay attention to what vendors are telling you. And perhaps if you're not going to um, implement identified issues, consider Mm -hmm. documenting that and documenting the reasoning why. Mm -hmm. Um, So Kim, I'm not sure if you have any other uh, risk issues you'd like to discuss. Yeah, I mean, I think at a very high level, um, there's been longstanding FFIEC fair lending guidance for a long time. So it's always, con- you know, important to continue to adhere to that. Um, however, I do think there's everything that Courtney mentioned um, represents a pretty big shift in the DOJ and CFPB's enforcement priorities to redlining specifically. Um, and in some of their more recent actions, you can tell that they're focused on some specific uh, metropolitan areas in particular. Um, so if that's an area that you do lend in or lend near and should be lending in, um, then that those are perhaps some uh, metro areas to uh, consider doing more targeted analysis uh, with your redlining for a lending program. Um, in addition, we've had some learnings that, um, you know, even if you're not lending in a particular area, um, if your peer lenders are lending there, 
um, you know, the CFPB doesn't necessarily see it as an excuse that it would be difficult to break into that area um, mm-hmm. where there is mortgage need. Um, so certainly there are business considerations in expanding into any new area. Um, but we found that the CFPB has been unsympathetic, uh, as well as the DOJ has been unsympathetic to um, the fact that that market may be saturated by other lenders who um, have a market capture in those areas. Um, so that's all I have to add. Um, one other point that I wanted to make is that, um, you know, the CFPB and the DOJ are not necessarily limiting their redlining enforcement to mortgages. Um, we're starting to see some inquiries into other financial service products. And so, um, for example, if you're a bank that offers a credit card program, um, it's it's still important to make sure that you're advertising and offering the, the service throughout your footprint um, and making sure that your footprint is fair from a redlining perspective. And I think it's easy for people to overlook outside of the mortgage space because everybody thinks of redlining as in neighborhoods and in you know city blocks. So um, thank you so much for bringing that up. I think it's really important for um, other areas in the financial services to be really attentive at you know making sure that they are not um, creating the imaginary redlining um, with the way that they're advertising their products. And Courtney, a few moments ago, you were talking a little bit about some of the, um, how the FDIC was a part of that referral process over to the DOJ in the redlining instance. Um, But it seems like the FDIC has been really active too, as it applies to how people are representing and utilizing the FDIC the FDIC title specifically, um, I've seen a lot in the crypto space. Could you talk a little bit about some things that are going on in that space? Because I think it's, you know, it's an emerging space and it's continuing to um, have some some nuances that, you know, folks are just not sure about. So I'd love to hear your in, your wisdom on that. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the the matter that I was going to discuss, I realized just yesterday that there was basically a duplicative one that came out um, just a couple of weeks ago that I'll touch on too. So um, back in February of this year also, the FDIC had issued letters demanding that two companies, one was a um, cryptocurrency exchange and the separate entity was a non-bank financial servicer uh, provider demanding that they cease and desist from making alleged false and misleading statements about FDIC deposit insurance. the, separately, the FDIC had also directed two websites of separate companies to remove similar um, alleged false and misleading statements about the nature of FDIC insured status of that cryptocurrency exchange. Um, the FDIC alleged that the that the entities had stated that they were FDIC insured when they actually were not. Um, the FDIC Act prohibits anyone from representing that an uninsured product is FDIC um, insured or misrepresenting the extent of deposit insurance. Um, and you know the FDIC here uh, claimed that the companies had misused also the FDIC name or logo, um, kind of in furtherance of that alleged misrepresentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what I was just alluding to at the very beginning here was that just two weeks ago, the FDIC made a very similar demand against another crypto non-bank. Um, so we continue to see them pretty active, as you mentioned, in the crypto space uh, with these demand letters in particular. Hmm. It just seems like it's not 
going away. <laughs> so it's um, the monitoring, especially for the companies themselves, just the importance of that monitoring. And um, Kim, if you could talk a little bit more about some of the things that some of these companies can do, because things may not always be intentional, but it's just that extra step of making sure that the monitoring is occurring and that the compliance measurements are in place. Yeah, oftentimes it's not intentional at all. And we see these programs uh, set up in such a way that they just don't qualify for FDIC insurance because the requirements were not met. And they're not particularly difficult requirements, but they're things that, you know, kind of get overlooked. And that's what generates a lot of these actions. So um, obviously only a bank can be a member bank of the FDIC. And so, you know, first and foremost, non-banks and crypto companies, they can't really represent that they are FDIC insured or that any funds that they hold are FDIC insured unless those funds are actually held uh, perhaps in a custodial manner at an FDIC insured bank um, where they set up in such a way that that insurance would pass through the non-bank's account to the people who actually own the funds. Um, and so we see a lot of this in um, these bank fintech partnerships these days where a fintech wants to offer um, an account or a payment product or a debit card to consumers. Um, they want to to be FDIC insured. Um, and that's all fine and good. That's definitely possible. But what you need to do is um, the bank or the non-bank, if they're appropriately licensed, needs to set up uh, an account at the bank that's either going to be titled in the name of the insured depositor or their customer. Um, or what's more common is you don't even have individual accounts, but you have some sort of omnibus pooled account. And that's either going to be held in the name of the bank or in the name of the fintech if they're actually licensed to hold that money. Now, the problem with that is that, um, you know, the titled account owner would typically be the depositor who's insured. And that insurance is $250,000 per person per bank. So if you've got the name of the fintech company on that account and they're holding money for other people, each person is not insured for $250,000 unless you can meet the additional requirements for pass-through insurance. Um, so in order to get passed through insurance, the titling on the account has to show that um, that money is being held either by the bank or by the fintech company um, in a custodial manner for the benefit of um, these individual beneficiary customers. And then there has to be record keeping that's either done by the bank or adopted by the bank, even if it's done by the tech company. Um, which shows exactly who owns what money in that account and um, who the beneficiaries are and in what amount. And if all those requirements are met, then um, the individual depositors would typically be eligible for uh, deposit insurance on a pass-through basis, even though they don't have an individual account at the bank or at the tech company. So those formalities, they're, they're not typically a big deal, but they are things that can just be done incorrectly and it entirely... Um, you know, makes your customers ineligible for FDIC insurance. And then if you misrepresent the insurance status, that's when the FDIC um, can pursue enforcement on that. And then um, the one additional thing I'll say about this is uh, there's been a rise in these deposit suite programs after the failures of uh, Silicon Valley Bank and others. And um, 
the reason for that is because so many, as we saw, so many big companies um, were at risk of losing a lot of their money because the FDIC insurance only goes up to $250,000 per person per bank. Mm-hmm. And it's just not realistic for a lot of companies to hold 250 here, 250 there, and have all these different operating accounts. It's just not feasible. Um, so where that left a lot of people when we were waiting over the weekend for um, the FDIC to say something about Silicon Valley Bank is all these depositors thought they were going to lose everything over 250 that was at SVB. So after that happened, we saw huge explosions in SWEEP accounts. And what a SWEEP program is, for those of you who don't know, is um, there is a deposit SWEEP network where uh, they have a number of different participating banks. So for the purposes of this example, let's say that there's four banks participating. Um, uh, Let's say I have an account at bank one and I have a million dollars that I want to deposit at bank number one, um, but I only get $250,000 of insurance uh, per bank. So what the sweep network does is they take um, the excess funds over 250 and then they sweep them out into the other four banks. And so I can get up to a million dollars in insurance. And then all of my um, all of my accounts and funds are insured. And that's great. Um, however, in order to do that, we have to meet the formalities of the FDIC insurance at every single bank. Um, and as we said, what typically happens is there will be maybe one big pooled account where everyone in the sweep account, uh, everyone in the sweep program has their funds pooled in this one account. Um, one of the banks will have uh, some sort of custodial account that holds all that money. And then they have to keep records of every single person who has money um, in every single bank where uh, those funds are held in that sweep network. So it's a bit of an undertaking, um, but it is possible. And now we're, we're seeing quite a big increase in the use of these programs because um, you know companies can get tens of millions of dollars in insurance for their funds if they want to keep cash on hand. Yeah, I noticed that also like a lot of local municipalities, they've been doing more sweeping ever since that happened because small towns can't afford to lose their money. So definitely it's um, something that I think um, folks need to really learn about those sweep accounts and why they're so important and critical to uh, maintaining the money over the $250,000 threshold. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing too is um, not all sweep programs are created equally. So uh, over that weekend, when we were wondering what SVB was going to do, we had clients come to us and ask, you know, I have the sweep agreement. Am I OK? Where am I, where's my money? It's, I don't think it's all at SVB. I think it's swept to these other banks, but I don't know. And unfortunately, some of the sweep programs didn't guarantee that the funds would even be swept into FDIC insured accounts. So it's really important in evaluating these sweep programs that it's actually swept into um an insured account and not maybe some kind of uninsured investment account or uninsured money market account. There are types of sweeps that really don't guarantee that insurance. Um, and so it's really important to read these uh, agreements very carefully. Wow. Well, thank you. That was very insightful and useful information. And so hopefully everybody out there is taking good notes um, <laughs> because there's a lot to this and um, you can definitely find yourself on the on the wrong end if you're not um, informed and well-informed. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Compile Podcast. If fair lending is something you'd like to learn more about, we have several resources for you, one of which I'll drop in today's show notes titled Quick Tips for Fair Lending Compliance. And if you feel like you need to learn more about recent enforcement trends and the marketing compliance insights you can take from them, Performline has done the heavy lifting for you and created two great pieces on this exact subject that I will also drop for you in today's show notes. As always, for the latest content on all things marketing compliance, you can head to content.performline.com. And for the most up-to-date pieces of industry news, events, and content, be sure to follow Performline on LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.